like I, I think when you go to go against the grain, but you still believe what you are in the right direction because you're observing your customer. Like you know that you're doing the right thing for you for your, the, the people you are trying to help. It, it, it just may become really hard, and you still have to survive. To make to survive, you sometimes have to make sacrifices. Hi everyone, this is Neil Devani, and welcome to season two of The Operators. This season, we're talking to people who have had a vision of changing the world and actually took the leap of faith to pursue that vision. Our guests include tech startup founders, nonprofit leaders, and rising political stars. Each guest has found supporters for their vision, built all-star teams to pursue it, and raised millions of dollars to make it all happen. We get to hear their stories and how they've overcome the obstacles to creating change. The Operators is produced by Necessary Ventures, an early-stage venture firm investing in what the world needs. Learn more at Necessary.vc. Before we meet today's guest, on The Operators, we like to highlight brands doing good. Today's is Warby Parker, the top online eyeglasses company. Warby Parker has distributed millions of pairs of glasses to those in need through their Buy a Pair, Give a Pair program. And they are now donating PPE and other preventative health supplies to those in the fight against COVID. Go to warbyparker.com slash the operators to learn more. Now let's meet today's guest. Aaron Bali is the co-founder and CEO of Carbon Health, a company providing same-day primary care and urgent care for both adults and children. In addition to a large telemedicine practice, they have built 27 clinics across six states in the last five years, and they just raised $100 million in a Series C round led by Dragoneer. Aaron is also a co-founder of Udemy, a $3 billion edtech company providing massive open online courses aimed at professionals and students. He previously served as the CEO of Udemy before starting Carbon Health. There are a few folks who have had this much success building direct offerings in healthcare or education, and I can't think of any others who have done both. I'm very excited to bring Aaron's insights to you, so let's meet Aaron. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today on an episode of The Operators. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Neil. Uh, before we dive in, can you share in your own words what Carbon Health does and the problem that it's solving? Uh, Carbon Health is a technology-enabled primary care company um, with an obsession to making great care accessible to everyone. And that, uh, that obviously changed a lot of other things, but I, I think we'll get into that uh, soon. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you just raised a $100 million Series C uh, led by Dragoneer with your existing investors coming in. Uh, congratulations on that. Thank uh, you. How was that process considering you're dealing with uh, COVID on one side as a healthcare company, but then mm -hmm. also the challenges of fundraising during COVID? Sure, so I, I think, Fundraising has had always been a challenge for carbon and before we, before the pandemic because uh, we uh, in the in the technology world there are a lot of companies which got funding to be healthcare services but they're all exclusively focused on the kind of young affluent uh, kind of essentially high income people and, and obviously a lot of investors are in, the, in that bracket so those things feel appealing to feel interesting to them. Uh, but we were from the beginning just thinking about like who's going to help provide amazing care to an average teacher, average retail worker in this country. So we were not we we're not really focusing on the kind of premium customer segments like most people. And then actually we really started from the, the perspective of 
how do we make great care accessible to everyone in this country? And we quickly concluded that to, be able to make this work, we need to use technology to improve the efficiency of every single step of healthcare delivery. And as a part of this, we also made the conclusion that we need to own and run clinics directly. So we have, we have uh, a footprint of uh, physical locations. So we have, I think, 35 as of today. We had only seven last year. So and next year, we'll have 170. So you're actually growing that extremely fast. Uh, but a lot of investors had, uh, uh, in general, like a negative, preconceived negative uh, perspective of the idea of opening physical locations, which is, I, I honestly think that's a like, misled argument in their side. I and mean, we can get to the specifics of it. But like, essentially, the fact that we are opening and running clinics without charging any premium rates, without really just having a membership type of stuff, which is not really accessible to most people. Like that actually, like what we do was always like the black sheep, the black sheep, sheep in the healthcare investing world. Uh, so, and a lot of investors want to avoid physical locations. They want to avoid primary care because it's low margin. They want to avoid anything that has to do with, with, um, with insurance. And they want to avoid like pretty much everything we are doing. Um, yeah, I mean, then, it's a it's a high capex business. Uh, yeah. LTV uh, isn't great. Um, there's not yeah. very clear channels for acquiring yeah. customers. Yeah. Um, so what was the, what was the story that you told that got investors on board? Uh, honestly, the story we told was that like, look, we see all of these comments, but here, if you look at the data, you realize most of them are not really very kind of uh, accurate uh, ways of looking at it. So yes, we have to spend some money opening clinics. But on the other hand, because you're targeting a customer segment, which doesn't really have any other uh, differentiated healthcare option, our acquisition cost is almost zero. It's around like $5 right now, right? So like per customer. And then the margins, like, I mean, we, we paid the acquisition cost with like 5% of the first business margin. Oh, so wow. this essentially, and the money you are spending on opening clinics is fairly minimal. We're not buying physical locations. We're just really renting and just making some minor investments. So if you like investors are used to spending, used to investing against companies, tech companies spending hundreds of millions of dollars in digital like Google ads, Facebook ads every year. Uh, so we don't have to spend that money, but we have to spend some money to open these clinics and we return those capital to get a cash on cash return a lot faster than average SaaS company like, pays back their kind of uh, advertising spending. Right? So, like anybody, any smart investor who looked at the numbers without the preconceived notion uh, actually would get it. And that's what happened with Dragoneer. They did their homework. They realized that, yes, categorically, you can call this capital intensive, but in practical, this is far less capital that you have to utilize to build a very large business than almost any other business they know. And did, then, you have I, to, did you have to go out to them or did they come to you seeing what you were doing and knowing like, okay, this is a good time to invest in this business? Yeah, I, I ran it through like typical process. I just okay. kind of highlighted it. Just, uh, I mean, in the growth stage, they're not all that many investors and you kind of end, end up knowing all of them. So Dragonier was one of the ones which was very well referenced by a, a founder, a um, friend of mine, uh, so uh, in, the, in their portfolio, so they were really big fans of Dragoneer and they did their homework. And I think the other thing is, again, sometimes people think when you have physical location, you cannot uh, grow fast. Like the argument for not having physical location has faster growth and carbon health has grown by 13x in one year. So I don't know how much faster we can, we can grow to That's like- a pretty good multiple year over year, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I feel like we, we had our data already kind of 
obvious. Like as long as you do not have the investors do not have the just kind of overly generalized like uh, thoughts, like they would actually see it. And drag engineering has several other firms sold that, and especially every and every day it's becoming more obvious. Like I think, like when you have this, when you're going against the grain a little bit, earlier stage rounds are harder because you don't have enough data proof to suggest your argument. But then over time, the the data arrives. And that's yeah. what happened in my last company, Udemy. So 100% of the investors complained, like said that there's no way human individual consumers will spend their own time and own money taking a course without a diploma attached to it. That was like, and lo and behold, <laughs> now they and have. And lo and behold, like, and honestly, this was not very surprising because people have been buying books to learn stuff forever. Like books exist. Like yeah. people are spending their own time and money like buying books without a diploma. So, but for some reason, investors have this kind of, I guess, herd like too much of a herd mentality sometimes. And uh, the ones which kind of go like see beyond that actually ends up winning. Can you, can you take me through, you know, kind of the, the uh, fundraising funnel you experienced yeah. uh, for the first round with Carbon versus with yeah. Udemy? I feel like in both cases, you're dealing with investors who are gonna be skeptical of your model. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, in the case of Carbon Health, you've had the success from Udemy. With Udemy, you had some uh, previous companies. I know there was like Speed Date and, yeah. and No Band, right? Yeah. So were they very different experiences? Like how many people did you have to pitch? What was the conversion yeah. rate? Yeah, so I mean, they were radically different because even though like I had some kind of startups, so none of them were funded companies. They were all kind of attempts in, when I was in Turkey. And Turkey's startup ecosystem was kind of non-existent when I was trying to do those things. So, so for all... Um, like, like I mean, we, I was practically essentially a new entrepreneur at uh, Udemy. And then we were also immigrants who just came from Turkey who did not really know anybody. I have, I, I have an accent right now, but I, I had a much heavier accent uh, when yeah. I first arrived. So that was definitely another big uh, kind of point of friction. Did you come with your family or did you come on your own? No, just myself. I actually started Udemy in Turkey first in 2007. Okay. That was no band. That didn't work, shut it down, migrated to Silicon Valley. Uh, and then I started bringing all the other people who were working on Udemy to Silicon Valley with some other, essentially through, through the same company I was working at. Uh, so I was on an H1 visa uh, and eventually I restarted the carbon, the, the, the company in, in the United States this time uh, and it became Udemy. Um, and eventually Udemy worked out really like successfully, but it was a tough process because again, you're doing something which was, which was the type of business that investors just did not want to invest in. A lot of education companies had failed in the like early 2000s. So there was a lot of like negative sentiments around the education market, plus the fact that you were just thinking this, like, this does not require a certification or diploma. If anything, like those things are just friction, right? So mm -hmm. it, like, it takes 30 years to build branding uh, for certification, right? So it just was a bad idea, but like, Everybody agreed that was the right way to do to, uh, of doing this. So, so I think like when you're new, you don't know anybody really. I remember Kitabo was the first investor, and the same day Kitabo and Russ Wade and just independently said yes to Udemy, and that was after maybe seventy like uh, unsuccessful conversations. So you had uh, seventy. You had seventy pitches basically. Yeah, we had seventy pitches, and we actually pitched Kit for the third time that day, and he said. I still don't think this is going to work, but every other time I'm meeting you guys, you make so much progress. Yeah. I'm just going to assume that if I just give you some money, like you'll actually just figure out the business which makes sense. 
um, and that's that's quite an endorsement. Yeah, it was, it was essentially uh, pretty much. I mean, there were a couple of people who who thought that, like, even though the former education companies had not really worked out, there's still a way to do like we do this again. Like Ross Whedon was the investor who who liked us, but who also believed like what we were doing was just a great idea as well, right? So yeah. there were a couple of people like most people just really. They just they just invested in us like the team being so like insistent and like I mean essentially the progress we were making from month to month without any funding was the signal they used to kind of to decide to give us money. Got it, Carbon got it, got it. is a different situation and like by the time I started Carbon, Udemy was a billion dollar plus company. Uh, so I mean usually your first round as a kind of repeat uh, entrepreneur becomes really easy, but even with that. I had a similar situation, but a lot of my investors got really surprised that I was doing what we were doing. Like it just, it still did not make sense to them. Like, why would you just like, it felt like a really hard thing to do. Like, because I was just saying that the, this country spent far more money than needed to provide amazing care to the entire population. Like nobody can convince me otherwise. And the second thing is, yes, there are companies who have done healthcare before, but like, I just don't want to work around and do something, something incorrect. Like, I just want to solve the problem very correctly. I want to help fix the healthcare disparity as directly as humanly possible. Because I think all these incorrect attempts have been kind of like just completely on. Just like, uh, like haven't really produced anything. How would, you, how would you crystallize like the problem that you saw with carbon health? Like healthcare disparity has many different pieces to it, but what was yeah. like the biggest thing that you wanted to solve there? Well, I think simply, essentially, if you don't, if you're not very high income, you, you get access to really low quality care in this country, or you get access to no care at all. Uh, so that's just a very obvious problem, specifically about like kind of the pricing and accessibility is what they're trying to solve. And we decided to start this from the primary care side. Um, when like our goal is to make a comprehensive healthcare system and technology in the center which is so efficient that like we can actually make it accessible to everybody in this country. That's, that's mm -hmm. the end goal. We started with the primary care because that's the first consumer decision in healthcare space. So when you, when you need a cardiologist, you usually go to the cardiologist that your primary care doctor reports you. So we thought that like, if you, if you really want to be in this market with better experience, we have to start from primary care. So we started by just literally opening primary care clinics. And then I made it forbidden to even look at other healthcare software. And we knew that the efficiency, just removing the redundancies in the system and creating better experiences by relying on technology was really the methodology of doing it. So we, we, we made it forbidden to look at other stuff and we start from the first principles and design the healthcare experience that we want for ourselves in a way which does not increase the operating costs at all to, to just make sure that it's still like affordable for everybody. Because it's not hard to, it's not hard to, spend more money and provide a better experience to, to rich people. That's not really a hard problem. And honestly, part of the reason I started Carbon is like, just the disappointment that like everybody else was just exclusively focused on rich people. That just really like, somebody had to solve this problem directly and we just went head on to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the, there's the are you familiar with the iron triangle concept in healthcare? Uh, I, I'm not familiar with it uh, like in healthcare. I mean, you're, 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 you're basically breaking it. The, the idea is basically uh, um, there's a cost, access, and quality on three points of a triangle. And as you move yeah. towards improving one, you lose the other two. And it's possible yeah. sometimes to get two out of three, but getting three out of three is like the holy grail. 
Uh, yeah. But technology, I think, is, is something yes. that can bend it or, or break the Iron Triangle, actually get you all three. And it's not yeah. like that's what you guys are trying to do. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, I mean, I was drawing the exact tri triangle uh, in the company, so I did not know that what it's called. But so, yeah, I, I mean, technology is really the only way to just kind of attack cost quality and what was the other one? I forget. Access. 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 Exactly. So, like, that's the only one that's what we have been really relying on. I think what I believe is sometimes when you, sometimes people just go too indirectly to a problem and that becomes the reason they cannot never solve the problem. So if you just say, I'm going to build the amazing care for rich people and all, over time make it cheaper and cheaper, that's just not going to happen. Because in service businesses, the, you, you have to first say, this is exactly, this is the maximum price it can cost. And then you need to design everything with that initial hard filter. And then you need to just kind of make the experience better and better every year. That's really how you have to just almost fix the cost and just interact with the experience versus just saying, I'm going to first build them the best experience I can ever build, the money can ever buy, and then make it cheaper. That 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 actually like it feels like a nuance, like a nuance kind of path, but it's very critical. Like you have to just you have to fix the cost for sometimes and then just iterate on one side rather than another. So. Yeah, it may it may work in some industries, right? It seems like that's the that's the Tesla model, that's the Uber yeah. model, right? You start with uh, the Roadster, you start with the black car, and then you move yeah. your way into Model Three or Uber Pool. But here, you're saying like it's a very different product, different experience, um, yeah. and and you can't kind of gradually get there. I can see that. I yeah. can see that. No, no, honestly, the two examples you gave are the exact like the examples that confuse confuse entrepreneurs. So so this definitely this model of starting from high end getting cheaper definitely works when you're building products because when you're building products there's natural reduction in cost with scale like so uh, sometimes you, you have to use like richer people to subsidize r d and then once available like as more people get it the product automatically becomes cheaper and this, so uber was never more expensive uber it was black cars were always cheaper than other town cars like limo services and Uber's cab service was always cheaper than other services, right? It was essentially, it was always cheaper. It was just happening to bring you black cars, which is more expensive than cabs, but they're definitely a lot cheaper than the comparable limo experiences, right? So I think in the service worlds, like, because every single decision you make ends up becoming somewhat influenced by the, uh, the operating costs. So for us, like, just having an obsession thing, whatever it is we are building, should be accessible to an average retail employee. Yeah, so I imagine but, you're thinking a lot about throughput, you're thinking a lot about which professional is doing which activity uh, to ensure yeah. that the, A, there's not redundancy, but then also like the, the proper cost is being uh, attributed to each activity. Exactly, so a lot of those optimizations, and you start with simple things, like while companies like Uber and Lyft are optimizing every second of the cab driver's time, we are wasting more than half of the that, like clinicians' times in this country. Yeah, we just had a very expensive resource that they cost roughly one thousand dollars, fully loaded per hour. So, and then we are after, like, so we, the first thing we attacked was, let's just look at every single thing they, team they do and just like remove everything which is not hard for medical decision making. Let's not make them do any kind of billing work. Let's not make them do uh, like any kind of prioritization. Although like a lot of charting they have to be just kind of redundant. I mean, those are obvious. So the, the, the basic principles was great patient experience. Like one thing which is very clear is patients want to experience everything through their smartphone applications. They don't want to call doctor, call the clinic to book appointments. They don't want to have a 
print a page with some instructions. They want to book an appointment, get their time, pay their bills, look at their care plan, get their prescriptions, everything in their forms, right? And that's great because if you automate everything, it reduces operating costs and stuff. So first thing we attack, patient side, let's make onboarding, care plans, everything fully digital, right? You, you are hitting on the operating costs, you are hitting on the customer experience at the same time using technology. And then the provider same similar thing, just remove everything which is not medical decision-making, which is what they did. Again, decreases cost, still better experience for the providers as well. And when the providers can spend more of their time helping patients, they get far more fulfilled. Providers don't want to see fewer patients. They actually yeah. just want to do fewer low value tests. They don't so, want to do notes. They don't want to be doing like filling out the EMR, making sure the yeah. billing is complete. They don't do want to notes, right? Like they should do want to write. Like you don't, they write more than we ask them to, but they only want to write notes which are relevant to your care next time. Right? Yeah. You know, like it's just really all about like if, if you spend 15 years like training for something and the, the whole country is making sacrifices to train doctors because doctors are really expensive to educate, right? So it is, that's, that's a fundamental problem, right? So maybe one day I'm going to help, can help with that part of the world as well. But like <laughs> they're fundamentally expensive uh, craft to just learn and practice and requires too much of a training. So it's just once you go through that, you don't want to like, like every minute they're losing low video test is, is redundant. But writing a piece of note, which is relevant, which is going to make the patient's care better next time, potentially with the other provider, that's the type of things that they do want to do. Uh, so, so we kind of really attack this thing, the, the things that doesn't make sense. That was the first couple of years. And over time, we started attacking things where now it's just we're getting harder problems. Okay. Um, when you go to doctor visit, the doctor asks you a bunch of questions. There's some medical decision making there. It's not completely useless, but it's not as as useful as the rest of your visit because the questions they are going to ask you is relatively standard, and then they might be putting up orders which are relatively standard. So we started hitting those kind of tests with machine learning because when we own the entire technology, we have data like historical data about what type of questions that those are asking and what input they are getting and what type of orders they are putting in what like which patients. You can actually start learning from what they do and like the straightforward things they do, like we start being able to cut them. So right now, the first five minutes of the doctor visit is pretty, pretty much all productized. And patients love this part too, right? So instead of sitting there asking, getting those questions asked, or even versus like filling out a form, the, the, our bot asks questions and our bot can be, that do these questions a lot more dynamically, right? It can ask questions, it can skip questions, questions which don't matter. And then it's just faster to kind of input data there. And sometimes people have like, the English is not their first language, right? So then having this on writing is kind of more practical for them. Uh, so and then on the provider side, the the single biggest time sink on the provider side is writing the story of the patient into their EHR. So we automate that part again. They're kind of releasing a lot of additional time for the the, the providers. It is again like. Nothing we do is just some rocket science, like never heard of before type of thing. It's just we we set the goal. We look at look at everything from first principles. Like we did not just kind of talk to a bunch of people and get their advice from like what is the biggest problem in healthcare. We just looked at it and measured that we realized we realized that a lot of the people that a lot of the other companies which work on this kind of random problems, like 
they just ignore some, some of the more important problems because they're not maybe uh, discussed as much. Like too yeah. much of the healthcare software companies focus on billing. And almost and that's the existing paradigm as opposed yeah. to what the new paradigm could be. And it's exactly. not going like, to cost down if you're focused on billing. When you start from first principles, the first problem you are trying to solve is like, how do I onboard them more smoothly? So that's literally the first thing we start working on is like, how to make patient onboarding super frictionless, and then how do we make scheduling like more seamless? How do we make care plan receiving care plan uh, more seamless? And eventually, we also optimize things like medical billing, but it was far kind of less important in our prioritization, and and really sometimes like. You can reveal a very successful company, not because on theory it's like a very different type of business, but sometimes you just just create this drastically different approach and your approach becomes the main competitive advantage to you. Yeah, yeah. I think it makes complete sense. I mean, I've seen yeah. many companies do this. I call it tightening the bolts, right? You have yeah. like a machine and if you just kind of make small improvements every single place there's an, op an option to do that or your ability to do yeah. that, the overall optimization is actually much larger. It's almost like, the opposite of like a death by a thousand cuts, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just like this is this is type of healthcare services are something that every single person wants and needs, right? Like everybody has a desire for like better health that they can trust, they can rely on. So, and a lot of money is being spent in the in the country, and uh, and the, the cost is part of the reason. Like one in every four four counties is a healthcare desert. Literally does not even have access to high quality primary care in the region. You just forget about the spatial things. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, uh, yeah, so those like, and to solve this problem again, like, the, our biggest difference in our approach was we, we went really head on. We said, this is doable. It's not impossible to do. We're not going to work hard on this problem and try to just like build some software that makes something a little bit more efficient or something. We really just actually provide excellent care ourselves. And we'll just invest any other amount of R&D design resources needed. And, and you guys do a lot of telemedicine too, though, right? Yeah, so we, we have been, from the beginning, uh, like from since 2016, we have been batting on this concept of omni-channel care. Yeah. The idea that like patients need you in different formats, modalities in different places, you just need to meet the patient wherever they need you. And reality is, Physical visits will always be an important part of healthcare. I think purely digital, pure telemedicine can at most cover 20, 30% of the visits. Other times you will need to them like physically available, but one of the things we learned is you don't always need the, the, the physician physically available, but you need to, sometimes you need the diagnostic abilities physically available. You need to be able to get a strep test or a urine test sample or a kind of blood sample. So those type of things that are sometimes like more often actually the requirements than the physician being available. Uh, so it is, uh, so we, we essentially have a really kind of strong mix of uh, virtual care, physical connects, we have mobile locations which goes to underserved communities, we have pop-ups, we have at-home testing case when it's relevant, uh, we have remote patient device uh, monitoring when it's relevant. So we really kind of tool, use whatever tool uh, exist to provide the best care to our patients. And that's why we kind of, kind of call it omni-channel. It's not about telemedicine versus clinics. It's just really patients need care wherever it makes most sense before I care. Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so you're, you're, you're the CEO of a, a pretty sizable healthcare company. Um, you were previously a co-founder and CEO of a scaled education technology company. 
Uh, you've hinted at this a little bit more, uh, but can you, can you dig into what makes you want to work on these hard problems? Why, why are you pursuing yeah. these things like healthcare education? And I ask this as someone who cares very much about both of those issues and invests primarily in, in those kinds of markets. Yeah. yeah, so I think the meta interest I have always had is how do you use technology to make a fundamental need more accessible? That's really, in between my angel investing and companies I started, that's, that's one thing that kind of unites almost everything. Right? So mm -hmm. I'm specifically looking for this thing that a lot of people want and need, but don't get ahead of it. Can technology change that? Yeah. Uh, so, and that's the kind of, the, that's the starting point. The specific implementation becomes different, right? So it, in, in the education space, how do you make world-class learning accessible to more people? First of all, you kind of realize there's so many different things people want to learn. There are millions of subjects you want to teach to be able to, to make that a reality. So just teaching one subject is not gonna make as much difference. So we kind of realize this has to be a large scale marketplace type of business where we, we, we can't just hire 20 people, people to teach everything. So we had to be able to, as a marketplace, as a platform, online only. And then we, for example, could make this, these look like workshops and boot camps, but then boot camps are costly to operate. Like it actually can't access as many people. So just purely on demand, right? So like what we thought was missing, one of, one of the things which was missing was just purely on demand. What is the much better version of the books? Books exist, but like, if you can make the book so much like 10 times better, 100 times better, then it can actually access more people. So we kind of essentially went from virtual only, marketplace style, on-demand product made the most sense. And at Carbon, there's not as much long, long tail, it's just, we just decided to go head into the problem and open clinics, build the technology, and create a company culture, like a people culture, which, which is like very like, which is very excited about kind of just transforming the kind of healthy for average people in this country, right? So is, I, is, this, yeah, is this something that was kind of like a, um, instilled in you from a younger age? Because I know like even when you were in Turkey, right, you started No Band before yeah. it became Udemy. Like where did this desire come to increase access to these yeah. things? What, yeah, what was I, kind of like underneath that? Yeah, I think actually this was covered before, a lot before it, I've had, had first done Udemy, but I was born in a southeast part of Turkey in a, in, a, in a mountainous region where I think more than half of the population is below uh, starvation kind of income line, 99% below poverty line. And literally my, and also on, on top of the kind of poverty, it was also under military conflict. Uh, so there's an open guerrilla kind of fight with, uh, so, and that, that meant like, majority of the teachers would actually quit their jobs just kind of avoid working at the region. Same thing with doctors, right? So like sometimes in that region that would be one doctor. Like majority of the year, like the doctor who was forced to go work that would quit their job and then like would have like zero doctors. So um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the one teacher like the, our school head was my, my mom. So, but like she was rotating between five different grades. Like she was going, Okay, first grade, I mean, there had to be five teachers for the primary care school and she was the only, only one who was actually working there. And she was actually rotated between classes, people homeworks. So, and I think maybe like my inspiration is actually less about like me. So sometimes people want to write a story of like how I grew up there and I end up being gold medal in Turkey's national medal and silver medal internationalist. And internet was an important enabler there. 
But to me, actually, the real innovation was not my own story. It was actually observing that in the village, there's kids, like kids, and it was also a mountainous area, right? So it's, a, it's 2,000, I think it's um, 6,000 feet high. So, and that would be like sometimes a couple of meters of, of snow. And kids who had to walk several miles every day in the snow did not skip one day of their class. Even with this old education, like, like inaccessibility and the fact that there's only one teacher for everybody, they just like didn't, all these kids, like they had no other option. So essentially, I'm very inspired by the fact that like the while opportunity is so kind of, while opportunity is so kind of in the unevenly distributed around different parts of the world, like the, the talent, the potential, the motivation, the drive, that's very uniformly distributed. Like my village, all these kids, which had absolutely zero kind of career opportunities, um, the only income is like like being a farmer or maybe herding animals, right? So, so like the, the drive, like the talent they had, is like I still I think like is very important for me. And I actually believe that technology is changing this, right? So, like having smartphone access. Sometimes people look at smartphones and they think, oh, this is for playing Candy Crush and like chatting. <laughs> but for for parts of the world, a smartphone essentially is a computer in your pocket for the first time. Internet means you're like less disconnected from the rest of the world. It Absolutely. means like, if you have a phone, you can have a job. Like people, even if you don't have a full-time job, when people need you, they can text message you and say, can you do fix this thing for me? All of a sudden you have like job security, like it kind of, yeah. so I think technology is still like, is actually making a far bigger impact in the, uh, in the developing world than, uh, than people think. So I'm, I'm very kind of inspired by that. And yeah, absolutely. We, we literally considered starting carbon health in just not in the United States, but in just a kind of developing country. I'm from Turkey. I mean, that could be an interesting place. We, we considered going to maybe uh, South Asia or Africa, like, do, like, essentially have them leapfrog. But what you later realize that the United States actually, in arguably, has a worse healthcare accessibility, like public health accessibility than most other countries. Like, like the healthcare in Turkey, Turkey is actually better than the United States for uh, if you just exclude like super high income people. Yeah, it's a, it's a sad reality. I think a lot of people don't realize how bad things are in America, despite the fact that we have um, healthcare reform only like 10 years ago that was put in yeah. place. A lot of it hasn't really been implemented or adopted. There's a huge, huge access problem. Um, exactly. I think I, this is like we are spending 20% of the GDP, like by far the highest in the, anywhere in the, in the world and has like, I think for just normal people, the healthcare access, healthcare quality that they can access. I mean, the healthcare for super rich people in the United States is amazing, right? Sure, so sure. If you get access to UCSF, Stanford, Mayo Clinics, like, that is great, but uh, just very rare people have access to those things. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people don't realize the complexity of uh, Medicaid and like CHIP, and if you're uninsured, which there's still, you know, tens of millions of people uninsured, you can go to the emergency room, but you can't go beyond that usually. And it's just very, very difficult. I mean, the fact that uh, uh, medical debt's the number one reason for bankruptcy in the United States yeah. kind of says it all um, relative yeah. to any other country. But Yeah, I mean, I look, we, we had patients, multiple patients, multiple kids who died because they needed ICU care and ICUs cost $30,000 if you don't have insurance, right? Yeah. So if, I mean, maybe they, like, if they went, their parents took them, like, essentially, they, like, 
maybe it would be that the regulation which forced the hospital to accept them without checking their insurance, but then you're kind of sacrificing your entire economic, like financial future, you're definitely bankrupt after that happens. And it is, the, I mean, the people are kind of dying left and right in the United States for because of the just lack of accessibility. And we are starting from primary care side of the things, but like we're not going to stay down. We are going to help like fix the entire stack of healthcare delivery. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think another interesting theme here is like yeah. uh, the the in in healthcare is the theme of of immigrants. I mean, just from Turkey alone, right? You have yeah. a couple behind uh, BioNTech uh, yeah. and and the COVID vaccine. Um, yeah. And then also, if you look at our healthcare system, there's so many immigrants across yeah. all of the uh, professions, right? Uh, yeah. Doctors, nurses, even yeah. in administration and and uh, billing and things like that. There's a lot of immigrants working in our healthcare system and making it run. Exactly, and and our team because of that is actually one of the diverse, most diverse any tech companies probably is. I mean, there's seventy percent, I think, women. A lot of people of color. Ton of immigrants and the kind of especially among clinicians, so some 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 um, people from some countries are fairly over-indexed. There's a lot of Asian people, obviously, like uh, over-indexed on the kind of medical fields. But sure, sure. So it, it is essentially immigrants are like a huge part of the kind of healthcare delivery uh, kind of workforce. Yeah, yeah. As as we uh, wrap up here, can you share? Uh, any other advice that you have for those who want to make change, who want to do things similar to mm-hmm. you, whether they're founders or otherwise? We have folks uh, who mm-hmm. listen from you know the tech startup world, from nonprofits, and then also uh, from the political world. So mm-hmm. you know how, you've gone from uh, a desire to make a change to a very clear vision. You've built mm-hmm. a community and a team. Each time you've done that, you've raised money. What yep. kind of advice would you give folks who are looking to get started on a path like this? Yeah, I think what I what I would suggest is uh, not to get overly overly kind of obsessed on valuations, fundraising, uh, things like that. Because I think too many entrepreneurs see fundraising as the ultimate like success versus really a tool. A lot of the time, even for somebody like me, with like this one success story, I really struggled like just capitalizing. What we want to do, maybe we actually ran out of money completely twice at Carbon. So we just barely oh, survived wow. uh, and like in, in both cases, it's, it was like, I, I think when you go to go against the grain, but you still believe what you're in the right direction because you're observing your customers. Like you know that you're doing the right thing for, you, for your, the, the people you are trying to help. It, it, it just may become really hard and you still have to survive to make, to survive. You sometimes have to make sacrifices, but at the end of the day, so like we have only we have only kind of like one life to just do the things we like doing. Well, if you really believe on something, and if other people don't, and you you still your your gut instinct uh, is just saying you're on the right track, just go on the right track, and eventually, like if you survive enough, you become successful. Yeah, yeah. You you have to have uh, courage in your convictions, and let your convictions give you courage. Exactly, but again, like it's not going to be easy or fun sometimes. Like. Uh, but it's most but, often not. It's usually very painful, right? Yeah, it's really painful. But like, I mean, when you have a strong conviction, uh, I think, and then you just like you, you push that no matter what. Like that's really how you eventually become successful. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems to have worked quite well for you. Um, I'm excited to see where you guys are going to take Carbon Health. I hope uh, you take it international and, and serve the rest of the world uh, and the rest yeah. of the United States. No, I mean, the rest of the United States is more like immediate uh, goal. So we are going to be in 170 clinics 
uh, 12 total cities next year. Amazing. But so 25, we should be in 1,500 locations. So that's going to make us truly going to nationwide. Uh, but yeah, even the global, I think, like, I mean, it's harder in healthcare to go international, but uh, but almost certainly we'll just get back to it. We'll become the, the, the largest healthcare provider in the world. I love it. I love it. Uh, after that, you can come fix uh, financial services. I think that needs some assistance too. Yeah, that, that's another area which kind of really, really bugs me. <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much for joining and sharing all of your experiences and your journey with us. All right. Thank you very much, Neil. It was an amazing conversation. Thanks.